Proverbs chapter 20, beginning in verse 19, is where we pick up from our time last time. We're told in verse 19, he who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, therefore, God's instruction, this is wisdom, do not associate with one who flatters with the lips. So it seems that what this proverb is speaking about, which we've seen numerous times before, is just the simple reality that some people simply cannot be trusted with information. Not everybody does well with having information, knowing about something that went on, and some just do have a propensity in life just to talk a little bit too much. And that can be just someone who, in nervous conversation, just as one of those individuals who at times just feels the need to talk because they can't take a moment of silence, and that's kind of one dynamic. But then there's the other dynamic of those who talk too much in the sense that when they're aware of something that transpired or they have information, maybe something sensitive or something took place or transpired, and they just can't resist sharing it with at least one or a few because they want you to pray with them. And it's not it's never gossip. It's always a prayer request in the church, right? We found a way to kind of spiritualize this, it seems, in the body of Christ rather than recognizing that sometimes it is the appropriate thing to just maintain confidentiality, to perhaps not talk about something. And here he describes those who actually go about as a talebearer. He says revealing secrets. In other words, just talking about matters and details which really shouldn't be discussed, something that's supposed to be confidential for some reason. And when this is someone's struggle, the Bible is simply instructing us, it's not wise to tell them things. If you recognize this about a particular person's personality or just their dynamic socially, God would instruct the wise thing to do is to realize that type of person, they're just not able to handle information. So they're probably not somebody safe to confide in or to talk to about or even, again, not to, to try and mock or someone to share perhaps something that is sensitive to genuinely ask them maybe to pray for a situation. I'm not diminishing that we shouldn't genuinely do that with a sincere heart at times. I think sometimes as Christians, we need to check our motives because on occasion, we just kind of want to talk about something and we couch it sometimes in our Christianese of, well, I'm, I'm just sharing this with you so that you can pray in the situation. And, and God knows our heart, whether we're sensitive uh, really to the Holy Spirit, and that's the real reason we're sharing, or if it's just that we're potentially just being a little too loose with our lips and we're kind of falling guilty in what's described here, kind of becoming a little bit of a talebearer and maybe revealing secrets that we should not. So he says, when one goes about as a talebearer and reveals secrets, if that's the kind of person they are, sometimes it's better to just not associate with those kind of people. And certainly maybe just not to share things with them, to be a little bit more reserved in what you would say out loud or what you would be willing to, to talk about in front of them. And even, he says, if someone is the type of person, he mentions in verse uh, 20 as well, that flatters with their lips. And again, flattery, of course, is just kind of excessive compliments. Nothing wrong with an encouraging word. Nothing wrong with giving a commendation to someone. I think sometimes as, as God's people, again, Ephesians 4 speaks about letting no corrupt word come out of our mouth, but only what is necessary for edification or building people up. And I think that we are a lot more probably prone 
in our sin nature to be critical at times and maybe not to encourage or not to say something to build someone up, and that's not healthy either. But we also need to recognize that there can be this propensity at times, again, where someone falls into kind of this dynamic of utilizing flattery, just excessive compliments, always kind of saying things. And sometimes when that excessive complimentary thing is going on, uh, God would just encourage us with flattery. Sometimes you just got to be careful in those situations to make sure that the excessive complimentary language or comments isn't a way to kind of groom you or kind of get something from you or to kind of get in a position relationally with you. And we have to use caution. And he says here, when someone's kind of guilty of doing these type of things, the tailbearer revealing secrets or excessive flattery and compliments, he says with those kind of people, sometimes it is best just, he says, there, don't associate with them. Just kind of pull back. You may need to have a, a boundary in the relationship. And when this is someone's struggle, uh, they're unable to have a kind of a, a healthy condition when it comes to speaking and interacting with such people, if we don't pay attention to this proverb here, can cause troublesome situations because then we find ourselves in situations where we're facing issues and problems because we're being a little bit too relational, if I could use the term, or a little bit too socially interactive in conversation with someone who has, if I can be very candid, a mouth problem. Uh, and that can be a problem with some people. And so he says, sometimes those are the ones that we, hey, I love you, but I'm going to have to limit my interaction or how much I associate with you because I realize that you just seem to have a struggle with your mouth and talking and saying things you should not. Verse 20, he then says, whoever curses his father or his mother, again, remember the Bible instructs that we're to honor mother and father. So this would be the exact opposite, not only dishonoring them, but Curse, that's a pretty strong language, so we're kind of way at the other end of the spectrum in severity. Whoever curses his father and mother, his lamp will be put out into deep darkness. So again, wisdom would tell us, even if God's word didn't instruct us, just natural respect, wisdom would tell us if someone is going to be honorable toward their parents in a relationship that that is the appropriate thing to do, that they're worthy of due respect because of the role they play. And so wise people honor their parents and displays of respect and attitudes of appreciation. And here he says, those who do the opposite, spitefully mistreat their parents, even dishonor them in, in disrespectful ways, will end up suffering severely. In fact, it says here, they will endure to some degree God's strong displeasure. And you might even say God's judgment uh, toward their life in some way, because they're clearly violating a biblical principle, we know that, of not honoring their mother and father. He simply says in verse 20, you go around cursing your father and mother, and he says, uh, somebody's going to put your lamp out. And he says, put your lamp out into deep darkness. That sounds like God's the one who's actually kind of bringing the strong judgment against the rude, disrespectful conduct of the parent, or the child, excuse me, towards their parent. Verse 21, he goes on to say next, an inheritance gained hastily at the beginning will not be blessed at the end. So good, good principle here to take to heart. Again, these are general principles of wisdom. Again, these aren't, we always have to remind ourselves, these aren't promises in the sense that this is a guaranteed thing. Uh, there may be those who can receive an inheritance maybe or, or quickly get ahead in some way. And maybe by the grace of God and wisdom and humility, they can manage it properly. 
But more often than not, what the Bible is saying, which tends to be common among humanity, is that when an inheritance is gained hastily or quickly at the beginning, it will not end up being something blessed at the end. So the idea here is speaking about how when money is gained very quickly, or we might say maybe when responsibility or position is gained quickly with little preparation to handle it or with little work that needs to be done to actually kind of earn it and to obtain it, whether it's money or a, a position or a role or responsibility, if it's kind of just hastily gained that opportunity or that money at the beginning and there was really not much uh, process of preparation and readying the person and them learning how to appreciate it and kind of put in their time, if you would, things of that nature. He says, unfortunately, that oftentimes tends to backfire because too quickly acquiring something that a person's not ready to handle oftentimes becomes their downfall. Uh, and sometimes it can be the case. I have certainly seen situations, I'm sure you have as well, where you know maybe somebody comes into money or they very quickly move and progress you know fastly through a company or they and then they're not ready for it and then it really ends up being their demise ultimately or someone who maybe gets a position or an opportunity and their character is not prepared to handle the position or the opportunity and so their character can't sustain their position and as a result of that, then they start behaving in wrong ways and arrogance, and they don't know how to use maturity and wisdom and people skills. And the problem really is, is they won't be blessed with favor and success because often they'll fail because they too quickly acquired what they did, and they just weren't ready to handle it yet. Uh, and so God cautions of this. He says oftentimes a, an inheritance gained too hastily at the beginning, uh, unfortunately, a lot of times it doesn't end up being blessed in the end, in the long run. Verse 22, do not say, I will recompense evil. The idea is I will repay. I'm going to get retribution for this evil thing done to me or this wrong thing that's happened to me. He says, don't, don't let yourself go there. That's not wise, the idea is. That, that's just kind of foolish frustration. It's foolish emotion. It's just human tendency to want to kind of you know, get back when we've been hurt or offended or angered or something. He says, don't say, I will recompense evil. God's advice, here's wisdom, wait for the Lord and he will save you. So again, difficult thing, but the Bible says it's not wise to give in to that human temptation in our emotional response of something, of wanting to settle the score and get revenge. Now, that is the natural response of all of us in our own humanity. It's the natural response, certainly, of our own sinful flesh to want to recompense or repay or you know, do what we can to kind of settle the score, get revenge. But the Bible says it's best to use restraint, and look what he says, to wait for the Lord. The idea is just to commit the matter to the Lord. God, you see what was done to me. God, that hurt. God, that was wrong. God, I was treated unfairly. Some unjust thing happened. And, and, and there's a genuine desire within, Lord, that's not fair. How could this be done to me? And they get away with that. And he just says, look, the best thing to do is to just bring that before the Lord, but then to genuinely wait for the Lord and let him step in and save you in the situation. Let him step in and come to your rescue because of what's happened. Allow, the idea is allow God to deal with it. Don't try and resolve it on your own. Just 
Commit it to the Lord. Let God deal with it. Again, Romans chapter 12 speaks much about this and how God in his word says on numerous occasions, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Uh, you know, and I have found over the years, and I'm sure if you were to be honest, you could say as well, that if I try and defend myself or I try and get retribution for myself in some way, whether it's in the most small and insignificant way or if you've attempted it in larger ways, God will let you, but typically you'll do a much worse job than if you just let God handle it. Because if you just let God handle it, he will deal with things. Look, any of us who are parents understand that. You mess with one of my children, we're going to have a severe problem, right? And God's a father. There have been numerous times where people have done stuff to me personally, where situations... And I genuinely, by the grace of God, thankfully was able to respond correctly and wait on the Lord and commit the matter to him, where I've kind of found myself you know, thinking and almost probably have, you know, saying to others, you know, I'm actually really concerned for that person because I can't imagine what my father is going to ultimately do to deal with them. Because if somebody did that to one of my kids, I know what my response would be. And God is a perfect, loving, protective, heavenly father who has much more power and much more ways. You think the mafia has got ways. God's got ways. God's got ways. Not, not the Godfather, but Father God. He has ways to deal with things. And it is wonderful to be able at times just to kind of just release it to the Lord. And he says, here's wisdom. Don't say, I'm going to recompense. He's no, 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 wait for the Lord and, and just watch. Give him a chance and watch how he steps in and saves you in the midst of that situation and shows that he was the one that took care of the situation. Verse 23 says, diverse weights are an abomination. There's that strong word again, speaks of strong disgust or disdain. Abomination to the Lord are diverse weights and dishonest scales are not good. Now, this is very repetitious to what we just saw last time earlier in the chapter in verse 10. Look back at it. He says, diverse weights and diverse measurements, they are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So again, the idea here is he's referring to the balance scales that were used in that day in the ancient marketplace. They'd put product on one side and weights on the other, and that's how they would buy and sell. And at times they would use deceptive practices. They would either use weights that said two pounds, but it really would be hollowed out, so it would only be one pound. And so it was a way to kind of cheat on the scales, or vice versa. At other times, depending upon if you were selling or buying the product, other times they'd have a weight that may say two pounds, and really, rather than being two pounds, somehow it actually was five pounds worth of weight, but it would just be labeled two pounds to kind of cut people off on how much merchandise they would get if they were buying something from you to kind of profit off of them in an un unfair way. The idea here is just malpractice in business, unethical dealings, trying to rip people off, being dishonest here. Uh, and again, as we mentioned last time, amazing to me, what a strong reaction God has just towards unethical business dealings. I mean, that that he uses this term. We see this term periodically in the Bible. It's, a, it's meant to be a strong word in its forcefulness, an abomination to the Lord. I mean, just a strong disgust. And he says, that's an abomination, diverse weights, dishonest scales, wrong business dealings, cheating people, lying to people, taking advantage of people, being a crook in some way in our business interactions. God takes that very offensively. And I think part of the reason for that, especially you understand, you know, in a culture where, as I mentioned Sunday morning, many people live genuinely like day to day. 
I mean, these were common day laborers. These were people who, uh, you know, lived in a lifestyle where, you know, they, they worked that day and they earned and accrued resources. And it was why day laborers were to be paid at the end of the day, because many times that was the resources to have just enough money to buy a meal for your family at the market at the night and to be able to, you know, supply. So when you're taking advantage of someone, you're putting them in severe jeopardy. Uh, and God is a loving provider and a caretaker. He didn't want people doing these things because they would be causing a real strain and, and a, a severe difficulty for people who were, again, uh, like many of us to some degree, you know, just people are trying to work hard. They're trying to eke a living out of the world. They're just trying to pay their bills and get by. And when somebody is going to be that disgusting to put an extra five bucks or 50 bucks in their pocket or to enrich their, you know, business practice a little bit more, God says, that's disgusting. That's disgusting. That guy's trying to feed his family, or that person's just trying to, you know, work and do what they can to keep a roof over their family's head, and, you know, God just finds a real disgust that someone would rip someone off in a business practice just to somehow selfishly enrich themselves a little bit more. Verse 24, he says, a man's steps are of the Lord. The idea is directed or, or guided by the Lord. Remember, Psalm 37 says, the steps of a good man or directed by the Lord. Here's kind of this, this same idea here of, of our steps being ordered by the Lord, like Psalm 37 describes. A man's steps are of the Lord. He says, how can a man understand, the idea is fully know for certain his own way. So again, Though God allows us to make plans and though God allows us to pursue our plans, you know, we've seen numerous proverbs that have given indication that there's wisdom in planning, that it's okay to make our plans, you know, that, that, that a man plans his course, but the Lord directs his steps. We saw that proverb. So again, nothing wrong with making plans, nothing wrong with taking steps. Again, God has given us free will. He has wired us this way. We're created in the image and likeness of God, which means that we are volitional beings. We are free moral agents. God does not direct our lives like puppets on a string. He doesn't strip from us our ability to, to reason things out and make choices. He doesn't just control us like puppets that have no say in a matter. That's a very fatalistic and a really unhealthy view, not only of life, but it's a really unhealthy view of God. To think that God would somehow create us and we're kind of just like, you know, these, you know, Play-Doh puppets and he just does what, us, what he wants and we have no control and, and just kind of like, that just resolves, all, takes away all human responsibility. It kind of gives the impression that God has some, you know, kind of weird character or nature that he doesn't lovingly let us determine things and make choices. Again, the Bible is very clear that we do. But what he is conveying here in this proverb is though God allows us to make plans and to pursue our own choices, he certainly still, because he's a good father, he still guides us in the process. He stays involved in our choices and even at times overrides as he sees best for his will and our best interest. And to me, that's a beautiful, loving balance. And I can totally understand that again from a fatherly perspective. At a certain stage in my children's life, as I realized it was my responsibility to teach and to train them how to become moral, healthy, responsible, productive, wise adults, there was a, a training process to prepare for the day when you take the arrow out of the quiver and you launch them. I don't want to raise and didn't want to raise children in a bubble 
who didn't know how to face a little bit of difficulty and to just be like a little weak snowflake that oh, melts under. You know, I wanted them to have some grit to their nature and to understand how to process things and face challenges and reason out things. And so there came a spot where, still under my supervision, I forced them and made them learn how to reason through things and learn how to make choices, and at times would even say, look, here's what I think is wise in that situation, but I'm going to let you make the final decision. And under my loving protection and guidance, at times I would allow them, as they were progressing towards the adulthood process, at times to make a decision, even if I didn't agree with her, I thought it was a bad decision, but it was done in such a way under my loving supervision that if I felt they were at risk or danger, I wasn't going to let them drive off a cliff. I wasn't going to let them do something ruinous and horrible. And if need be, I would step in if I felt that it was necessary. And so in some ways, God in his loving kindness, he lets us make decisions, but it's important for us to realize he certainly guides and overrides when it's necessary. And it's wise to realize that it's not all under our control completely in our lives. Because we have a loving father who cares about us, he will at times, if he sees his little adolescent child making a bad decision, mm, I let you try their bad idea, Tony. And, and he has no problem sticking his hand in and saying, mm, if, I don't think you should go forward with that. And so at times he has a way of stepping in, you know, closing doors sometimes or doing something to redirect our steps. And we should be thankful for that to realize that, you know, we're not fully in control. Does God allow us to make choices? Yes. But it is also way out of balance to think that somehow God is disconnected and he's not in control as our journey is unfolding. Because the reality is that would be what I would call a dysfunctional parent. That would be a negligent parent, right? God, God's not an absentee parent. He's an involved parent. And so as we're journeying, we're deciding, we're thinking, but God at times is even overriding and redirecting, and he's helping us, and his ways at times are at work, and he's orchestrating things that happen. Because again, the Bible ultimately tells us that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And we may plan our our course, but the Lord ultimately directs our steps maybe in how it's going to come to pass. And here this proverb kind of is speaking of a man's steps are of the Lord. Oh, I'm taking this step. I'm taking that step. I'm taking this step. Don't think that you're taking those steps completely independent of the Lord. The Lord at times is involved in directing and coordinating and may even, you know, order our steps this way or redirect us that way. And he says, so how can a man fully understand his own way? The idea is it's keeping us living in constant dependence upon him. Lord, I'm praying. I think this is the right thing to do. I'm asking for wisdom. I'm getting counsel. And so, Lord, I'm going to take this step or I'm going to do this. But to realize at the end of the day, here's the good news. It's not all on you. Because, man, that would stress me out. <laughs> that was, And I don't know about you, but the older I'm getting, the longer I've walked with the Lord, and certainly the longer I've done ministry, there are times where I, I, I find myself coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, you are way smarter than me. You not, just, Would you just pick for me? Can you just make it so I just want to obey you? I don't want my own way anymore. <laughs> Please, Lord, just pick for me so it is so obvious that I can't miss it. Just make it so clear, and more and more I... I'm fine with not understanding my own way. I just want God's way. I just want to see his way and just follow his way and trust that really that's what's best and going to get me to the right spot. Verse 25, he says, it is a snare for a man 
to devote rashly something as holy, that is to make a, a vow or a rash commitment to God or dedicate something to God, maybe it's money, maybe it's a, a period of our life, Lord, I'm going to dedicate my life to you, I'm going to do this, I'm going to go on the mission field, I'm going to dedicate my life to be single, for whatever, you know, we make this kind of rash vow or a pledge, he says it's a snare, it can be a real trap to devote rashly something as holy and then afterward reconsider his vows. So it's unwise, this speaks of, and a trap to make our vows, the Bible says, without really thinking them through. Again, the scripture teaches that our yes should be yes and our no should be no, but sometimes that means that before we say yes, or before we say no, we should kind of think through it a little bit. Because he says here, particularly when it's making a vow to the Lord in some way or devoting something as holy, set apart for God, he says it's a real trap to devote something very quickly, prematurely as holy, and then afterward, come back and reconsider your vows. And afterward, oh, I mean, I really shouldn't have done that, or I don't know if I want to follow through with that. And then we're backpedaling and reversing on our commitment, and we're not following through. And the Bible says that's not something that should characterize our nature. That's rather unwise. It speaks of the wisdom of taking time, consider things well, process before you make the yes, before you make the no, before you make a commitment, think through before you enter into that commitment, because he says to have to reconsider afterwards what you vowed too prematurely is really not a wise thing. Verse 26, a wise king. Now, again, what's a king? A king is a ruler, a one with authority, one who has power to rule over the people. A king sifts out the wicked and brings the threshing wheel over them. So this describes a wise ruler. A ruler has, again, power and authority. And he says a wise ruler is characterized by recognizing what part of their role is. And part of their role in wisdom is to work in a way to identify and to remove evildoers from their society under their rulership that will just harm other people. He says here, not a foolish king, a wise king sifts out the wicked. So a wise king, just when, like when they would sift things in the culture, you know, when you sift something, you're separating. When he describes there as well in verse 26, bringing the threshing wheel. Threshing was a process where you would separate the wheat from the chaff. And so these are pictures of, of separating two things, separating what is worthless and no good from that which is good and, and is of substance. And so the idea here is that the authority given to a leader, a governmental ruler, is given to them in one primary sense for sure is that their role, if they're operating wisely, is to identify and separate and remove from the rest of the society wicked, evil, harmful people that will cause hurt and, and jeopardize the welfare of those who are innocent and wanting to do what's right. And so again, he says, this is what a rise ruler does, not tolerate evil people, not give opportunity to evil people. He says, no, a, a, a wise king sifts out the wicked. He removes the wicked. Hey, you're wicked. You're the one jeopardizing families and the welfare of individuals. You need to be removed. And he says, that's what a wise king uses their authority 
to actually do in their governance. Verse 27, the spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of his heart. So the inner life of a man, the spirit of a man, and again, the Bible speaks of how you know, we are created in God's image and likeness, right? And, and we, we refer to God as a trinity or a triune being, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the, the three persons of the Godhead. Well, in a sense, we are created as a triune individual. The Bible speaks of us having a body, a soul, and a spirit, the body being our physical, uh, fleshly uh, component that, that we dwell inside of, the real you dwells inside of this body, the physical body, which is really just an earthly tent that's designed for earthly expression and experience so we can experience the physical realm, and then we shed this tent. It's not a permanent dwelling place. We get a new permanent eternal body for the heavens in that dimension. So we have a physical body, and then we have a soul, which is sort of the the, the mind, the consciousness, our personality, who we are. And then there is the spirit of a man, which is the part of you where you're able to have connection and relationship with God. The Bible speaks of how in Romans, it says that God's spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. The Bible speaks of how when we're born again, that our spirit comes alive, that we're dead in trespasses and sins. And when the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, our inward spirit is, is converted and made alive, and then that's how we have fellowship with God. And so here he speaks of how the inward part of us, the spirit of us, which is what I say is that, that conscious that we have within is where God gives light to see things clearly for our choices. It becomes the lamp of the Lord. It's the place where God shines his light into our lives to allow us to see things in a clear way that are true about God, about Jesus. It's where he exposes our motivations. He says, searching all the inner depths of the heart. And Paul writing to the Corinthians talks about how God, the same God who spoke light into darkness has shown light into our hearts that we might see the, the glory of God through the face of Jesus Christ. So God, this is where God deals with us. The spirit of a man becomes the lamp of the Lord and as his light shines in, he searches all the inward depths of our heart, seeing what is true about us inwardly. Verse 28, he says, Mercy and truth preserve the king, and by loving kindness he upholds his throne. So here he describes another good king. He says that speaks of how a king protects himself, preserves himself as the king, as well as upholds or retains his throne. And he says he does such gives himself the opportunity to continue carrying on in that role of leadership by having both a standard of truth that he operates by, as well as not just operating by a standard of truth alone, but the king must also understand how to be merciful as needed as well. Because you can have laws and a standard of truth and expectations and a standard, but guess what? People are going to fail. At times, they're going to make mistakes, and they're going to not keep the law, and they're going to be issues. So he says, a wise leader, a wise king, a wise ruler must understand the balance of both a standard of truth, but at times, how to extend mercy and operate in merciful ways. Being a leader, he says, who exercises loving kindness towards the people. Again, being a leader who sincerely loves his people and is kind in the way that he cares for them and treats them, because when a king operates in that way, listen, and treats his people well whom he leads, people will respond to that kind of leadership. And when a king operates in a just way 
having a standard of truth, but at the same time being merciful and loving and caring towards his people, that will earn the respect of those he is leading because they're being treated well, and they will become supportive. They will become loyal towards his leadership. And this is the idea here, that if one leads well, treats people well, they will preserve and uphold their position of leadership because people want to follow good leaders in the same way they don't want to follow bad leaders. So he says here, this is an important thing. It's the way that loyalty is kind of cultivated among those who one is leading. Verse 29, good balance of two generations always in existence. He says, verse 29, the glory of young men is their strength. The idea is their energy, their physical strength. And the splendor of old men is their gray head. And of course, that speaks of, again, the gray hair is the crown of honor we see in other places. So the idea here, the splendor of the older men, the older generation, is we might say their experience. And the fact that they can bring experience because of their longer duration of life. So notice, the Bible says here in verse 29, wisdom recognizes that both generations are essential and that both generations should value and appreciate what each one contributes. And rather than the younger generation despising and disrespecting the older generation, and rather than the older generation being annoyed by or irritated by things of the younger generation, he says instead, God says wisdom recognizes you need both. And both, when they bring to the table what they can, can offer something beneficial. He says a younger man offers additional energy and strength to work tirelessly and to get things done and accomplished. That maybe the older man or the older generation just doesn't have the chutzpah to do anymore. And so the younger generation with that energy and enthusiasm and passion, he says that's the glory of what they bring. Now, the drawback, of course, many times of the younger generation is they can lack a degree of wisdom. They lack a degree of experience and knowledge because they just haven't had as much time at that earlier stage. Where the older man, he says the benefit the older generation offers is that wisdom and experience that's been accrued through the many years of living or working or all the things they've learned just because they've had a lot more time doing what they've been doing, and that gray hair of experience can offer valuable insight and guidance how to handle things, how to navigate situations, and that experience coupled together with the energy, God says, can do a really great thing where both appreciate and value one another. And again, the older generation brings that experience, but just like there's a drawback to the younger generation, sometimes the drawback of an older generation is they have a lot of experience, but sometimes because of where they're at in life, they also can be a little bit overcautious at times, a little bit more reserved, and maybe because they don't have the energy to do something or the enthusiasm to try something, they, in their experience, sometimes can get out of balance where they lack that youthful willingness to try things. This is how we've been doing it for, and, and, and that can kind of happen. And, and then sometimes it can be missed. So God says the beautiful thing is when there's wisdom recognizing, hey, we need both the young and the old. They contribute wonderful things to help balance and support one another and make a great team when they do so. Verse 30, blows that hurt cleanse away evil as do stripes the inner depths of the heart. So here sometimes he describes there are evil things within a person, even in the inner depths of our heart, that maybe are unhealthy, they're destructive, and those kind of things need to be removed. 
So when there are things within us that are evil or unhealthy or destructive, those things need to be removed from the inward life. And at times, it may take, this proverb says, enduring some painful experiences to clear out from our inward life those things that are evil, unhealthy, and not good. And so sometimes it may require a painful, hurtful process to get evil things out of our life. It may require a difficulty or pain or hardship or suffering to some degree to clear things out of our life that should not be there. So this is what he's describing, blows that hurt. Oh, man, this hurts. But hey, if it's cleansing something out of your life, just like a surgery to remove a tumor, it hurts. Nobody says, can I sign up for surgery? Right? A surgery hurts. But sometimes a surgery, just because it hurts, is still helpful. Because if it removes something from your body that's not good, well, that which hurt actually wasn't harmful, it was actually helpful. And I think we need to realize sometimes God will allow us, and sometimes God may be the one behind it. Again, what does the Bible tell us? That God disciplines those he loves. So sometimes the spanking's coming right from God. <laughs> so whether it's coming from God or whether God is just allowing us to maybe kind of you know, experience some pain or suffering in some way to drive things out of us, please, please always remember, wisdom knows that not everything in our life that hurts us necessarily is harming us. There can be lots of times when something really hurts in our life, but that hurtful thing actually isn't a harmful thing. In fact, it can actually be a helpful thing, especially, he says here, if it's cleansing away evil or taking things out of the inner depths of our heart that really should not be there by God eradicating it through pain or hard suffering. Verse 1 of chapter 21, he says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So great little proverb here to encourage us that we can realize as well as rely upon that no human ruler is supremely in control. Isn't that good to hear? To be able to realize and then to rest and rely upon that no human ruler is supremely in control. Because again, God can intervene. God can overrule. No human ruler has pushed God off of his ultimate throne. He can still orchestrate his purposes as he deems necessary. And here he says, even the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. It is, it is, the heart is right in his hand. Like rivers of water, God can turn that heart of a king, his mind, his desires, whatever way he wishes. Now, when he says here, turning like rivers of water, he's speaking the term there, literally channels of water. He's describing diverting the strong flow of a river by creating at times channels to redirect the water as may be needed. Again, that's how they would move the water from a river, things would be done or set up and, and they would do things to channel and redirect the water to where they wanted it to go. Or they'd redirect the water to where they needed it to go for a purpose. It was properly at times done to irrigate their fields or to get water where they needed it to, to redirect it from the strong flow it was going in to another direction where they needed it to go for a set purpose. And this is the picture here of how God can take a person like a strong river flowing at flood stage. He could take a person who's got a really strong view about something. And you're thinking, man, that the flood is so strong. The current of that mindset 
the, the, the desires are, and, and a person can have really strong desires heading down a path in one direction, but he says, look, never put it beyond God. God can redirect. He can rechannel that at any time he wants to. If it's in accordance with his purpose, if God needs to get something where he needs it to be or cause a circumstance or move in a person's heart or mind to change their thinking or to override their desire, he can turn a person in whatever direction he wants to. He's more than able to do that, even the most powerful, influential people on the earth. Even a king, he says, someone with all power over others. We see this in the Old Testament exemplified numerous times with rulers, Pharaoh, Cyrus, right, with Ezra and Nehemiah in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah when God wanted them to go back and rebuild the temple back in Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. It says that God stirred the heart of a pagan king, Cyrus, to make his heart favorably disposed, to prompt and encourage. Why? God put those thoughts in his mind. God redirected his desires in a way that was, again, just God worked. Why? Because it was in accordance with his will. And so this is something that is important because it's wise for us to understand this because then you can rest in faith at times because of what verse 21 says. Oh, Lord, I just don't know what to do. Their mindset is nothing's going to change them. Nobody could ever change them. That's not 100% accurate. He says right here, the wise person rests in knowing that even the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and just like redirecting the channels of water, God can turn that king's heart and change that person's mind in any way that he wants to if that's a part of his purpose. And so therefore, we can rest in that. We can pray like that. Lord, I, Lord, I just ask him, Lord, please change their mind. Lord, redirect their heart. And, and, and to trust that God is able to do that. Just by the move of his hand, we don't have to strive something. We don't have to force and, and try and make something happen. We can pray and say, God, that person's heart's in your hand. Change their heart, Lord. Change their mind, Lord. Re redirect. And, and to trust that God can do that is a really wonderful and a very wise way to live our lives, he says. Verse 2, every way of a man is right in his own eyes. We can all relate to that, right? But the Lord weighs the heart. So again, from our limited human perspective, things always seem right to us, right? Our way of course, this is the right way. I mean, I can tell it's, the, and, and he says, every way of a man, you know, of course, it seems right in our own eyes because what we're doing, again, we have limited knowledge, though. The problem is we have a limited view on matters. We always have a blind spot. Even when we think we have all the facts, we never have all the facts. And sometimes we are so convinced that our way is right and sometimes the bottom line is even there's just underlying desires and intentions that may be directing us. Sometimes it's not even just our view on the matter or even just what we know about the matter. Sometimes, you know, just like when you put on, you know, sunglasses, if you've ever worn colored sunglasses beyond just regular sunglasses, and right, so you put on a pair of sunglasses and they got a blue, you know, tone to them. It's amazing. Why does everything look blue now? Well, because you're looking through blue lenses, and sometimes our view on something is shaded and we see things a certain way because of the desires within our heart or our intentions or our experiences. And I really caution you, be careful in that because sometimes we have certain experiences in our past and that makes us hypersensitive to those situations in the present. 
And we often don't even realize that we're more hypersensitive to certain things and sometimes out of balance and it seems so right to us. And the reality may be, maybe the problem is, is that your motive underneath or the thing that you went through before, your past experiences are kind of what's influencing you seeing that in such a right way. And God says that really wasn't the right way. And so he says here, Every way seems right in our own eyes, but the Lord, again, he, he weighs the hearts. The idea is he knows my motives. He knows why I'm taking that way. He knows why I'm seeing things that way. So what does the wise person do? The wise person hits the pause button and says, Lord, this seems right to me. But Lord, would you weigh my, and, and if my heart's not right here, God, would, would you reveal that to me? And, and that's a good thing to do, to, to have that wisdom to say, God, you know my heart, and if I've got intentions or motives, that, that are, and I'm not right here, and I don't have all the facts, that, then Lord, help me to see correctly. And I, I believe God in his love would reveal those things. That's why the psalmist says, search me, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. So it's good to know God can weigh your heart and to ask him to do it. To do righteousness and justice, he says, is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Notice, to do righteousness and justice. That is to do the right thing, to, to relate to people in the right way, and justice, to do what's just, what's appropriate, what's fair in how we treat people and the decisions that we make or what we do. He says that is way more acceptable to the Lord than just making a sacrifice. So God speaks here of how his preference is that we do what's right morally and spiritually that we treat people properly from God's perspective. And he says that is way more preferable to God than just some religious duty, than just some sacrifice that we would make or some form of giving. In other words, it's not healthy, and, and this is the, the principle in the midst of this, it is not healthy at all to live wrong or to do what we know is wrong or to cross some line, or to treat people wrongly in some unjust way, and then make some sacrifice to make your conscience feel better, and think somehow you bought, you bought God off, and God's okay with that. Oh, well, because you, you make this sacrifice, or, or because you serve in the church, or because you gave this money, oh, that's okay, you, you can treat your spouse horrible. And God says, no, no, I'd rather you do what's just and right. I don't want your sacrifice, God would say. That's, that's hypocritical. Read the Old Testament. There are times where they were bringing sacrifices, and God said, stop bringing me sacrifices. This is disgusting. Because basically God was saying, what are you trying to do, make yourself feel better? And again, what does God say to, to Saul ultimately? To obey is better than sacrifice. Certainly, there's nothing wrong with sacrificing, but he says here, the wisdom principle is it's much better, more acceptable to the Lord to do what's right, to do what's just, to treat people properly, to do the right thing in life than just to make some sacrifice. Again, we want to be very careful because we can all kind of fall into this error at times and think somehow that by making a spiritual sacrifice, like it atones for, or worse, it's almost like it gives us an allowance to do what's wrong in some way. And that's a really, really scary place. Again, God's not into here you can buy a few indulgences and go sin. That's not how God works. God says, just do what's right. That's what matters more than making a sacrifice that is really meaningless sometimes. Verse 4, he says, a haughty look and a proud heart and the plowing of the wicked are 
sins. So those who are filled with pride and arrogance in their spirit, he says, end up plowing in wicked fields of sin. They end up feeling like in some ways maybe they're entitled because of their arrogance within their spirit by their inflated sense of self-importance. That's really what haughtiness or pride is, an inflated sense of self-importance that makes people feel they're entitled to somehow do something wrong and, and no one can confront them. And so they end up planting and plowing in fields that are going to harvest wicked outcomes. And he says that's a, a dangerous path to go down. Verse 5, the plans of the diligent surely lead to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty to poverty. So he speaks here of the wise and beneficial approach. Here we are back to the wise and beneficial approach of planning and using patience and persistent work to reach goals and to make progress, to get ahead. And God says, this is wisdom. This is a wise pathway that leads to plentiful abundance in due time. And that is plan, be patient, persistently work the plan till you reach the goals and you make progress. And he says that will pay off much more dividends than making quick, impulsive decisions. He says the plans of the diligent, that will lead somewhere to plenty, but those of everyone who's just hasty, making quick, hasty, impulsive decisions, or trying to do the get-rich-quick scheme, or trying to find ways to just quickly somehow avoid having to work and plan and stick with something, he says that you're going to be much better to just take the patient path, you know, again, kind of the, 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 the turtle rather than the rabbit, you know, the story. And this is the idea here. God says that's the way to wisely get ahead in life. Instead of hastily chasing after the get-rich-quick ideas, the fast money. Again, very common those who don't plan and who don't persistently work, and they're always just looking for the get-rich or, or get-ahead real quick and not have to really work and stay the course. He says it's very common those who fall into that trap that they find themselves end up struggling and not having what they need. And he says it was because of the hastiness rather than just the humble, hardworking approach of working a plan and plowing the field. So again, just good to ask ourselves at times, trying to be wise, Lord, you know, what's the best way that I can get what I need and get ahead? God would say, make a plan and be patient and stay at it and just keep working and just keep, and he says, that will get you progress. And God would say, if you're prone to being hasty and acting quickly and having you know, unrealistic expectations, he says, you got to get realistic because if not, you're going to find yourself struggling and not having what you need because you weren't really kind of just persistently working, but trying to just chase after the kind of the golden pot at the end of the rainbow approach. Verse, 20, or verse six, he says, getting treasures by a lying tongue is the fleeting fantasy of those who seek death. So he speaks of the person again, the lying tongue to get treasures, the person who will do dishonest things to lie and deceive in practice, to get ahead in some way financially. He says that is, that is a fleeting fantasy. The idea is those who are willing to lie and be dishonest to try and get ahead financially, they are following, God says, a foolish fantasy because it may work initially and there may be some immediate gratification to lie, to get some financial advancement but God says, you are following a fleeting fantasy if you really think that's going to work long term. 
Because God says it's not going to work long term. You're believing a fantasy. You're detached from reality. And why? Because in time, liars always get caught. It's just a matter of time. It always gets exposed. So God says, don't buy in to that foolishness of being willing to lie to get ahead. He says, really, all you'll do is follow a fantasy. And in the end, he says, you're just seeking your own death. In other words, he's saying, it'll kill you. Doing that will just kill you. It'll just ruin you long term. Now, why don't we stop there for this evening? But if I can draw your attention just real quickly back to chapter uh, 20, uh, just for sake of you know, something as a way to kind of cap off our, our study this evening. We'll, we'll stop there. But, I, you know, on occasion, I want to periodically just give you a reminder and draw your attention to that. Times in the, in the Old Testament, it's always good to look for and consider how we might see Christ, our Lord Jesus, represented in the Bible. Remember in the New Testament, uh, you know, Jesus said, everything in the law and the Psalms and the prophets, they speak concerning me. Lo, in the volume of the book, it's written of me. And so whenever we're studying the Old Testament, it is good, but by the Spirit of the Lord, not that we try and strive and force and get overly mystical, but that at times we're being open to seeing Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures. And so, you know, on occasion, I think it's just kind of an interesting thing to, you know, I don't want to overdo it every single time, but just to bring to your attention how even in the book of Proverbs, we can see that if you're looking and wanting and you find maybe an inclination in your heart that you enjoy, wow, that, yeah, that speaks of Jesus there in some ways. Look at chapter 20, the last verse. Verse 30, and think about Jesus as I read this. Blows that hurt cleanse away evil, as do stripes the inner depths of the heart. You know, if you step back from that and just let the Holy Spirit bring it to light, speaking of what Jesus endured to cleanse, to purify, and to heal our inward lives. You know, you might want to write in your Bible there, Isaiah 53, and read Isaiah 53 and tell me if it does not expound upon verse 30 here of how that speaks and was most beautifully fulfilled, not in a guilty person experiencing pain to drive bad things out of life, but in the innocent Lamb of God, who the Bible says what? By his stripes, we are healed, right? And he was wounded for our transgressions. He took the blows for us. Blows that hurt Jesus cleansed away evil from my life and from your life. And by the stripes that Jesus painfully endured as the innocent one suffering on our behalf, he cleansed the inner depths of our hearts and set us free from things because of what he did for us.